We are incredibly privileged that um, the Voice of the Martyrs is in our community, and uh, they, they keep the vision of prayer for the persecuted church uh, on the forefront of, of our thinking. I'm, I'm glad for that. I've, I know I've learned a lot in the last 20 years about what's going on internationally, but this applies directly to our ministry at Grace Community Church because we partner with a uh, series, a set of pastors in Cuba who go through this all the time. And um, before the ushers come to take our offering, I just would like for us to bow and, and you silently for a moment pray for our partner, our partners in Cuba who are encountering persecution. Just, just spend a moment silently praying for our partners in Cuba encountering persecution. Father, we are expressing our gratitude for the example of the men and women who serve in Cuba, who share the gospel, who lead churches, who lead house churches, who share the gospel. Lord, many of them have been um, brought in before the authorities and questioned. Many have been detained. Many have been regarded as being foolish. And yet they continue with joy sharing the gospel. And Father, I pray that you would strengthen them. Lord, they have been a tremendous example to us. I pray that you would strengthen them. And Lord, I pray that you would use the example of our, of our partners to lead communist officials to Christ, to lead um, the leaders of the agricultural committees to Christ, to lead some of the city leaders to Christ. Thank you, Father, for the way we have learned a lot about about courage in the face of opposition by watching our, our partners face opposition in Cuba and do it really well. Thanks, Father, for the privilege of being able to pray for the, those who are persecuted today. Lord, I pray for Voice of the Martyrs and that, that their message about praying for the persecuted would, uh, would, get, would get out there even, even more broadly than it is now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask our ushers to come forward and to, uh, to take our offering. While they're doing that, I just would like to ask you to turn to the first um, chapter of the Gospel of John. We're in our series called uh, The Word Made Flesh, Experiencing the Heart of the Father Through the, lo- for the, through the li- Life of Jesus. I love this section, John 1 through 5, because this is the beginning section of John's Gospel where everything is going really well. And... Uh, Opposition comes later on in the Gospel of John, but this is at the beginning where there's a lot of of encouraging signs and power that comes forth uh, from Christ. And this morning, uh, we're going to look at John 1, 19-34, which is the story of John the Baptist and how John the Baptist represents uh, Jesus, paves the way for Jesus in uh, this fallen, fallen world. So I want you to, to, to like do a little creative exercise for me. Now you're gonna have to, I, I want you to pause for a second and get in the mood for this because you're gonna have to get in the mood for this one. I want you to do a creative exercise with me. I want you to imagine that it's Sunday afternoon, you're watching football and you see a call coming into your, your cell phone and it's the 202 area code and you know that's Washington DC so you think, okay, I'll take the call. The person in the line says, uh, the White House is on the line. 
and the president wants to speak to you. Okay. You discern that this is the real deal. And the president gets on the line and he says, I would like for you to be an ambassador. And then he mentions the name of the country. And you don't know that country. There are 194 countries on the face of the earth right now. That country sounds familiar to you. You can't place it. So you get out your map and you begin looking at, where, oh, I know where the country is. And it's in a conflict zone. You realize it's in a conflict zone. And so you think about your family, and you think, do I really want to be the ambassador to a country in a conflict zone? But this is the president, and this is your country, and you say, yes, I'll go. Now, fast forward one year. What have you encountered as an ambassador during that, during that previous year? You've encountered two things. You've encountered two things. The first thing you've encountered is opposition. Every member of the foreign service who has a foreign service posting anywhere in the world, even in London, will say that foreign service officers are often looked upon with cynicism, skepticism, and scorn. That's just the way it is. As an ambassador, you have encountered a level, a measure of opposition. But you've also encountered a measure of power because you are a representative of the most powerful country on the planet. Foreign service officers encounter two things. They encounter opposition and they encounter power, both things. Now, here's the thing about encountering opposition and power together. It accelerates your maturity. It accelerates maturity. When you have tremendous opposition coupled with tremendous power, it is an accelerator of maturity. We see that in the example of John the Baptist this morning, and we'll see how that works in our lives today as we look at how John the Baptist is our mentor and our guide for representing Jesus well in a fallen world. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to just tell the story of John the Baptist and then I want to crystallize the main idea of this season of his life. And then we'll have some takeaways that are very practical for how, to, for how to do this. But first, I just want to tell you the story about John the Baptist. You remember that John the Baptist and um, his, uh, John the Baptist's mom and dad were very elderly when he was born. They, were, they had been childless. And I'm sure they felt life had totally passed them by, but then Zechariah had a miraculous encounter with God. He is uh, in the temple. He is, he is serving uh, with, uh, with his, as a priest in the temple. And then an angel appears to him and says, Zechariah, you're going to have a child. Zechariah knows enough about biology to know that's impossible unless you break through. In due time, God came through with the promise. Zechariah goes, goes back home. He goes to the hill country of Judea, and Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have a child. And you can imagine the pride of this couple as they hold the child and dream about what he would be in the plan of God. Meanwhile, to spur them on, Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
has made this dramatic trip to the hill country of Judea, and she's hanging out with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the three of them are excited about what God is doing in their midst. In fact, the first time that Mary crosses the threshold of their house, John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb because he's filled with the Spirit. I will tell you that life for John the Baptist was not easy because his parents were old. And I am envisioning that they had John the Baptist when they're in their 70s, and I'm envisioning they probably die within their 80s. So John the Baptist is 10 years old by the time his mom and dad die. Where does he go? Well, we have one vague reference in Luke 180. The child grew and became strong in in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Ten-year-old kids in Israel didn't just hang out in the wilderness. They didn't do that. I'm assuming that the people at Qumran, the Essene community at Qumran, took him in because that's what they did in Qumran. They took in orphan boys and they raised them up. And that he learned the scriptures in Qumran. Uh, Qumran is the place where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And so they were great copyists of the scriptures. Now, don't get me wrong. John was not in a scene. He did not have a scene theology. He was not part of that sect at all. He has a completely different perspective on things. But I suspect that that's where he grew up after his mom and his dad died. Now, he turns, you know, maybe about 30 years old, and the time has come. He'd been hanging out in the wilderness for many, many years, presumably a couple of decades. And the time has come for him to do his great work of announcing the Messiah. But where to begin? Where should he begin his great work? John chooses a very strategic location. He chooses Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, Bethany beyond the Jordan was a place that was 10 miles from Qumran and very close to the city of Jericho. And one day, John appears by the Jordan River. And I have to tell you, this was a dramatic time in the history of Israel. And he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is very near. Now, this was a major highway. He's on on a major highway going a north-south highway. It's the Jordan Rift Valley Highway, major highway going north and south. And anybody who wanted to go north from Jerusalem would go from Jerusalem to Jericho. They would turn left at Jericho, and they would walk north up to the city of Beit Shan, and then they would walk up to Capernaum. And so people are are going by this place all the time. It's in the wilderness in the sense that at the edge of the city is the wilderness, but a lot of people had heard about John, and when they were coming on their journey and filling up their Nalgene bottles, uh, they heard this guy. Like, like what's, this guy, what's this guy talking about? And pretty soon, you've got Romans who are there, you've got Jewish leaders who are there, and you've got people who are lining up to be baptized by John the Baptist. This guy was an amazing guy. I mean, he looks like a prophet. He's got, he's got the, 
camel hair jacket on, you know, and it's not made by Ralph Lauren. It's, you know, stitched together by who knows who, and he's eating locusts and, and wild honey. Everything about John gives the ring of truth that he is a prophet. Now, that background brings us up to John 1, 19 through 34, and this passage records two days in the life of John the Baptist. On day one, John testifies in the midst of opposition. Remember what I said about ambassadors. Ambassadors encounter opposition and power. John, on day one, testifies in the midst of opposition. And so here's what happens. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. By the way, the repetition of those words is going to become really important in a moment. I am not the Christ. And they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? I hope you hear that in the tone of these words, the opposition that's beginning to come against John. I guarantee you, if the priests and the Levites came from Jerusalem to check this guy out, the high priest knew and Herod the Great knew. And that was not a good sign. He's testifying in the midst of opposition. Now, I realize that that passage does not sound all that complicated, but John was in a minefield of political problems if he said the wrong thing. So the first question is, are you the long-awaited Jewish Messiah? A lot of people back then were, were thinking, maybe he's the Messiah. And a lot of people were claiming to be the Messiah. And John says, I am not the Messiah. Let me just make that really clear. I'm not him. Well, okay. Are you, are you Elijah? There was a myth back in the first century that Elijah would be literally reincarnated and that the literal reincarnation of Elijah would appear. And so they're asking a question based upon a misconception in the first century. Are you the reincarnation of Elijah? He says, nope, I am not that guy. And the third question is, are you the prophet? You might remember that Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 said, that a prophet would come along that would be greater than Moses. Now, that prophecy by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It's a prophecy about Jesus. And John, of course, answers, no, I'm not him. And the final question is, who then are you? We need to give an answer to the bigwigs in Jerusalem who sent us here to check you out. And so John gives this great quote. This is from Isaiah, but in John 1.23, it says, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. It's a quote from Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Now these rel religious leaders are, are a little, little miffed because he hadn't told them anything that they can take back with clarity to their 
to their leaders. So they say, why are you baptizing then? Like, what, what are you doing? Because if you were going to convert to Judaism, you were baptized by immersion, and if you were a male, you were circumcised. He's not baptizing people to become Jews. If you were participating in a religious ritual, you would baptize yourself by immersion. If you go to Israel, there are these little baptismal pools at the base of the Temple Mount called mikvot. And you would walk into these baptismal pools, you would baptize yourself, ritual washing, and then you would go worship. John's not doing that. So what are you doing, John? What I'm doing is I am wanting you to be baptized for repentance. I'm a way maker. I'm paving the way. You repent of your sins. It's like you paving the way to understand the reality of who Jesus is. And by the way, you guys, do you know what? He's right here in your midst. When he said that, everybody is kind of going like, where? Where is he? Where could he be? They were, I mean, John is building a tremendous amount of suspense. I can imagine John smiling as he's building this suspense. Now, one thing should jump out at us as we read this. John the Baptist is not intimidated by opposition. I have to tell you that the opposition represented in those verses is an opposition that is very politically correct given the culture of the first century. This would have been very nerve-wracking to anybody because these, these are the political bigwigs. This is the politicized culture of the first century putting pressure on John the Baptist. And he's not the least bit intimidated. He's calm. John, the gospel writer, demonstrates this in two ways. Notice the um, two words confessed. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Hey, when John the Gospel writer writes this, does he have to use that two times? No, he doesn't. This is a very conscious way for John the Gospel writer to say, John is telling the accurate story. He's not sugarcoating anything. He's telling the accurate, he's bold. He's not intimidated by the politically correct speech. Notice also the threefold denials. I am not the Christ. Five words. I am not. Three words. No. One word. Uh, what what this, is, this is saying is that he is ascribing greatness to the one whom he represents. This Jesus is going to become better, greater. He's going to become lesser. He's going to become more humble. John, is, is, John the gospel writer is telling us something here. John the Baptist is a good witness for Christ. Who denied Christ three times? Peter. Who at the beginning of the gospel of John confesses Christ three times? John the Baptist. John the Baptist is being put forth here as an ideal witness, an ideal ambassador. Now here's the point. Ambassadors are always conscious of two forces, opposition and power. John the Baptist wants to make very clear in the face of opposition, Jesus is first. He's number one. 
He handles opposition by magnifying the greatness of Jesus. That's day one. Day one is the day of opposition. Now we come to day two, and day two is the day of power. And in day two, we switch from the place of opposition to the place of strength. Under the leading of the Spirit, John now identifies, identifies Jesus. Um, here we go. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the, this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, a little bit of background. John the Baptist knew Jesus. They knew each other. But I bet it had been at least a decade, if not two decades, since the last time they saw each other. I, I'm fairly certain that on festival days, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus would, and the brothers would go, and, sis, and Jesus' sisters would go to Jerusalem, and John the Baptist and, and Zachariah and Elizabeth, would, they, they would all meet in Jerusalem, and they would play together. They would hang out together. They were cousins. And it was a fun time. It was a joyful time. Jesus, John the Baptist, they knew each other, and the parents were beaming as they played with each other. That would have been really cool to see that, you know, the forerunner of Christ and the Messiah playing with each other in Jerusalem at festival time. Really cool to see that. But I suspect it had been a very long time since they had seen each other, and John the Baptist's parents are not sending Christmas cards up to Nazareth, you know, saying, hey, look how big John the Baptist is now, you know. How's, how's your Jesus doing? There's nothing on Instagram, nothing on Facebook. And so it's been a long time. And how do you feel when you go back to a high school reunion and it's been 10 years or 15 years or 20 years and you're looking at somebody and said, Joe, is that you? You've gained 25 pounds since the last time I've seen you. No, you don't say that. You don't say that. But, you know, you, it takes a while before you recognize that person that you haven't seen for 10 years. So John the Baptist and Jesus, they, they know each other, but it's, it's been a while. And I don't think John had the theological precision, the exact theological precision about his work as we see now from the Scriptures. And so uh, what does John do since he doesn't exactly know when his cousin is going to show up? John says, I was called by God to baptize anybody who would respond, and the Father is going to show me Jesus in the process. So one day Jesus shows up, and after some brief, brief words, John recognizes his cousin, and John says, I, I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, oh, yes, you should. Oh, yes, you should. Let's, let's do this. And John baptizes Jesus, and what happens next is flat-out amazing. It's amazing, because what happens is John lowers Jesus down into the water, and as Jesus comes up, it's like the sky is torn open, and a dove begins to slowly circle down from the sky. This dove begins to circle down, and I can imagine all eyes being up on the dove. It's not like the dove is zooming down with lightning quick speed. The dove is circling down, circles down. The dove then lights on the head of Jesus, I'm assuming, I'm assuming. 
And while the Bible doesn't say this, it almost seems as if the dove then becomes subsumed into the body of Christ. It's the same idea that you get when the tongues of fire are distributed on the disciples in the upper room. It seems as if the, the, the fire is on top of their heads and then gets subsumed into their body. Speculation. But that's how the text seems to be, to be written. When people saw that event, they were blown away by it. And they were blown away by it for a couple of reasons. There was a very strong tradition in Greek thought. Remember, they, they live in the Greco-Roman era. That deity could be described in birds that flew. So any Greek person who was there, any Roman person who was there would, would think deity. Any Jewish person who was there would also think deity. This is an amazing miracle that took place over the course of maybe, maybe 15 minutes as the, as the, as the dove is, is coming down. And it is the first time in human history that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit clearly manifest themselves in a public way in a miraculous encounter. Now they, in the Old Testament, it happened in a much more veiled way. Now it's, in a much, it's a much more clear way. People are gasping in amazement over this, over this incredible miracle that they saw. And then it gets better because a, a voice booms down from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. John knows now beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the sac sacrificial lamb, this is the son of God, and John is hugely fired up because this is now his life mission is to represent this individual. What does John do with his newfound confidence? Remember, we're now in, we're now in day two. When he sees Jesus, he makes this big, bold declaration and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's an amazing statement because what John is doing is John is declaring the good news before the cross. Anybody who, who heard this would have been thinking about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. How did you atone for sin in the Old Testament? Sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Here's the problem with the sacrifice in the Old Testament. You could, you could sacrifice rivers of blood. And guess what? Human sin would not be fully atoned for. So John is declaring that a different sacrifice is going to be made. The sacrifice is not a mere animal. The sacrifice is a substitute, a God-man substitute that God would provide who would be the solution for sin. It's the gospel given before the cross. The good news gets better because John the Baptist's good news isn't just good news from Israel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That, that means Jews and Gentiles. That means everybody spanning the entire globe, every human being who would ever live would have the opportunity to get in on the forgiveness of sins. Then it gets even better because what John is making clear that this is not a technique. This is not like a new technique that you got to do in order to be religiously 
adherent to Judaism. He says, behold. What does that mean? In Greek, it means see, see. It's a person. He says that the solution for sin is not in a new religious technique. It's in a person. Look at the person. It's the person of Christ. And it even gets better than that because what gives Jesus the right to be the Lamb of God? What gives him that right? Um, out of all the religious figures who've ever lived, out of all the people in the first century who claim to be the Messiah, what gives Jesus the right to be the Lamb of God? Well, notice what John says. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Well, when a Jewish person says Son of God, what they're saying is this person is God in human flesh. This is God in human flesh. So the reason why Jesus can be the Lamb of God is that he's the Son of God. And that's the story of John 1, 19-31. What's the, what's the main idea? The main idea, <clears throat> the main idea is that John faithfully tells a story that he personally experienced. Now, <clears throat> why do I say that? Six times, John is described as a witness in John chapter 1. To be a witness in first century thought is to be somebody who has personally experienced something and seen something, and then he tells other people about it. It's about a story. More, moreover, two times, John confesses that he's, he's not the Christ, uh, that he, he, he confesses who Jesus, who Jesus is twice. And then John gives a threefold negative answer about the fact that he's not the Christ or Elijah or the prophet. What John, the gospel writer, is saying, it's all about the story. It's all about the fact that John has a story to tell. And that story is a story that he can tell very authentically because he was, he was there. Now, John's experience applies directly to your experience. You've got a story to tell. You've got a story to tell. And like every ambassador, we've got to, first of all, address the issue of rejection. John encounters tremendous opposition. You did not want to get on the wrong side of religious leaders in the ancient world. You did not want to do that. Herod the Great killed the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus, after Jesus was born. Herod the Great killed several of his wives, several of his kids. I mean, if you messed around with the religious leaders or the secular leaders in Jerusalem, they killed you. You didn't get on, want to get on the wrong side. And John is addressing, apparently, his fears of opposition, and he's being bold in the face of that opposition. That's what witnesses do. If you want to represent Jesus well in a fallen world, you have to address your fears of opposition. And then to tell the story well, you've got to be in the habit of receiving power from God. And John was in the process of receiving insight from God about Christ and then conveying that to people as he was representing Christ. I'm sure you know that um, all news anchors have a thing in their ear called an IFB, an interruptible foldback. Now, these News anchors are really good about not 
letting you know that they're listening to their producer or their director, but they're listening to their producer and director all the time when they are on air. These producers are barking out things to them, you know, five, three, two, one, all right, now you're on. They're getting input all the time. You can't see that, but it's happening. And part of receiving power as a witness is the ability to receive insight from God in real time as you are sharing Christ with people. Now, I became a Christian when I was in high school, and I had a pretty dramatic experience with this when I was a high school student. I moved to Milwaukee, Wisconsin when I was a junior, midway through the fall semester of my junior year. And we moved to a, a house next to a Methodist church, and the 35 students in that youth group had all received Christ at a retreat. And they were fired up like I'd never seen anybody fired up before. And I had received Christ before that, but I'd go into this youth group, and I like, they are really fired up. And back in those days, in, especially in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, it was very easy to get into conversations about spiritual things. And so my friends and I would go down to the beach, Lake Michigan, and we would share the gospel with people who were hanging out on the beach. Sometimes they were doing drugs. Sometimes they were hanging out, doing, what, doing whatever. And I can remember being a new Christian and the Lord impressing upon me verses that I had read one time. And I would share those verses and they would be meaningful to the person who was hearing the gospel. Th that just inflamed me with love for Christ because what I realized was there's supernatural power here. There were times where I'd be sharing the gospel with somebody and I would get this illustration that was a perfect illustration for what they were going through and I would realize, wow, Lord, you gave that to me. That's amazing. It made me love Jesus as a high school student. Um, and then my friends and I high school students from Milwaukee, we would get together and we would talk about what happened while we were sharing Christ down on the beach. There was no youth leader leading us in this. There was no campus pastor leading us. This was a spontaneous thing that was happening among high school students at Whitefish Bay High School and Nicolay High School in Milwaukee. And it taught me that there's power in Christ when you take the step of being a witness. Now, that has not gone away, and I'm down in Cuba a couple months ago, I'm sharing the gospel, and this illustration comes to me, I share the illustration, and it's like perfect for that situation, and I think, all right, Lord, this is so cool because you love to give out power while we are involved in the Great Commission. That's what Jesus promised. He says, behold... I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That promise is a promise directly tied to the Great Commission. As you do the Great Commission, my presence will empower that process even to the end of the age, up to the time I come back. So what did I say about ambassadors? They deal with opposition and they deal with power. John the Baptist dealt with opposition and power. If you're going to be a good witness, you've got to sort out issues of opposition and power as you represent Jesus Christ.
And it's a pretty exciting thing when that kind of thing happens. Now let's get to your story. Here are five things you can do to represent Jesus well. Here's the first thing. Be clear about your identity. You know, there's a lot of people, even followers of Jesus, who ask the question, why am I here? What's the point of my life? What, what, am, what am I really doing in my life? And you can, you can get really confused about your identity in the year 2017. Really confused. Ryan Seacrest on American Idol one time said, hey, this is America where everyone has the, the right to life, love, and the pursuit of fame. A new declaration of independence. I have the right to life, love, and the pursuit of fame. I want to zero in on this for, for a moment because... Um, Yalda Uhls is a professor at UCLA, and she writes a media blog called Media Moms and Digital Dads. And she said, uh, after a study that she had done uh, at UCLA, fame is the number one value communicated to teens on popular TV. Do you believe that? Yeah, I mean, there's so many ways that you can achieve fame these days. I'll have to tell you that many adults fall into the same trap. They know that by doing certain things, they can become famous, at least on Facebook or on Instagram or on some social media thing. And there's a lot of money that can be had by becoming famous on social media. I would say that what Yalda Ull said about, about kids is also true within pop culture. What am I here for? Am I here to become famous? Is that, is that, my, is that my purpose in life? Um, Brene Brown is one of my favorite authors. I love the things that she does. She had this big surprise because she did a TED Talk that had six million views. And she said, you, you can't believe what it's like going from a nerdy professor, I think she's at the University of Houston, a nerdy professor to being famous like within three or four weeks and having people call you up and say, hey, will you speak to this Fortune 500 group of, of CEOs? Hey, will you speak to a group? It, it, it's just, ugh. she said, I didn't deserve that. I will tell you that a lot of people long for that in this digital age. What are we here for? What are we here for? Jesus gave us the answer in the Sermon on the Mount in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are here to make the name of God famous. We are here to represent Jesus at whatever level you, you are. Maybe your corner of the world is very small. Maybe the corner of your world is reasonably big. Maybe the corner of your world, like Billy Graham, is massive. At whatever level of audience God gave you, your purpose is to make the name of God great. And you make his name great by living out the values of Christ and speaking about who he is. That's your identity. It's really hard to sort that out in today's world. Here's the second takeaway. Get good at telling your personal story. I, I love the fact 
um, that John gets progressively more authentic and vulnerable as his story unfolds. He says, I didn't recognize him. I I just find that mind-blowing, right? I find that mind-blowing. But this is the ancient world where you don't have ID cards, you know, and lanyards with pictures, you know. I, I just find that amazing. You know, J- Jesus didn't come like with a lanyard that said Jesus, you know, and a barcode, you know, where you scan it and said, he's God. He didn't come with that. John is being very vulnerable about his, his, the fact that he's receiving information from God in real time about the identity of the Son. I, I'm just stunned by that. Uh, but God told me how I would recognize him. God said that the Spirit would come and remain on him. And so John is being very authentic with his story. He's being raw and honest. Look, your story has lots of twists and turns as well. Some of those twists and turns are victorious things where you can say, look what God did. So excited about God's work in my life. And other twists and turns are twists and turns about pain and heartache and shame where you think, I have no idea what God was doing in that. None at all. But you know what? I still love Jesus. Don't know what he was doing. Wouldn't want to go through that again. But Jesus is my, my Lord. He's my, my Savior. He's present with me. You know, you've got you've to get good at recognizing your story and then telling your story. And what I would say is that you need two stories. Story number one is your elevator story. When I was in in Russia, my translator said, Rod, give him a 30-second story about how you came to Christ. I said, okay. And I came up with a 25-second elevator story about how I came to Christ. And when my, 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 (laughs) my translator heard, he said, that's really good. With a Russian, he said that in Russian accent. That's really good. You need a 25-second elevator story. You also need a 15-minute story. And you need to get really good at telling both those stories. I know I've said this before. I'm probably going to say it again because it's really important. If you want to represent Jesus well, you need two stories, an elevator story about your life, about how you came to Christ, and you need a 15-minute story that tells it, that, that tells it in, in a lot more detail. And don't fall into the trap of saying, oh, my story is so boring. Nothing interesting happened in my life. Because I promise you, your so-called boring story is going to connect with somebody else who doesn't know Christ, who has a similar boring story. No story is boring. And don't, don't denigrate your story by thinking it's boring. Tell your story. I was sitting in a world literature class my junior year in high school, and my teacher's stated purpose in that class was make you not be a Christian anymore. And I can remember thinking, I gotta get serious about my faith. (laughs) Otherwise, I'm gonna lose my faith. I gotta get serious about it. That was my 25-second elevator pitch. I said it better than that in Russia, but that was my little elevator pitch. And people in Russia apparently really, really latched on to it. Third takeaway is tell the gospel story well. You know, John has a very succinct story. 
Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know what that story says? That story says sin is going to be removed by sacrifice, and the person who's going to remove it is that guy there, Jesus. So the story is wrapped up in a person. And what you want to do is you want to get really good at telling the story about Jesus, about Jesus' atoning death on the cross, about the fact that Jesus' death is for the entire world, about the fact that the ultimate good news can be the good news because Jesus is is God. I get the impression because John repeated this in verse 29 and verse 34 that John said this a lot. So you want to get good at telling your personal story and your faith story. And that leads us to takeaway number four. Expect pushback. Expect that people are not going to like this. Expect that people are going to roll their eyes. Expect that people are going to give you the cold shoulder. It's going to happen. Look, we live in one of the last countries in the face of the earth where we can get out and tell the story often and have people be reasonably open to receive it without persecution. I will tell you, people in persecuted countries are much more faithful to share the, the, the story than people in non-persecuted countries. Your non-persecuted status ought to be a stewardship that you use well. And here's the, fourth, uh, the, f- the fifth takeaway, be strategic. Uh, where does John go? Uh, John goes, well, he's in, the, he's in Bethany beyond the Jordan. It, it's a wilderness place, but w- wilderness was like right outside the city in the ancient world. John is on a highway. He's, on, he's at the edge of the Jordan Valley Rift Highway. He's strategic. And so what I would say is um, be strategic. Um, we have a lot of strategic people in our church, and I'm excited about that. Let me, th- let me just read to you some of the places where things are happening. The Voice of the Martyrs, Washington County Emergency Shelter, Nehemiah House, K-Life, On the Rock Ministries, The Journey Home, Low Family Young Scholars, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Celebrate Recovery, Grace Kids, Grace Student Ministries, City Council. We have, we have people strategically involved in various parts of our city. Way to go. Way to go. Let's excel still more. The whole point of, of this scenario, I said at the beginning, White House calls you, be an ambassador. You encounter two problems, opposition and power. And my challenge to you is when you navigate both those things well, God accelerates your spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father God, as we um, transition toward communion, I just want to say thank you for the fact that there is power in the gospel. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, we're celebrating the power in the cross today. We're celebrating the, the fact that the cross is power to salvation, that it is power for the entire world, that it is power because you, Jesus, are the one who died and the one who rose. And so this morning as we come to the communion table, we're celebrating the power 
that comes from the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus said in the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he <clears throat> um, gave thanks and he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He also took the cup and he uh, said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Take this in memory of me. So we invite you as you feel led to come to the communion table. Uh, if you're new to grace, uh, we take the bread and we dip it into the juice and we take it. So you come as you feel led to communion. Give life.